So how many of you like home renovation TV shows? Okay, yeah. there are a lot of people who like these shows. I, I Googled this, I found out that there have been 108 home improvement shows on TV. How about that? 108, House Doctor, uh, Extreme Makeover, uh, Domestic Blitz, one is called, I like that, Desperate Houses, not Housewives, Des Desperate Houses. The current favorite is Fixer Upper. Uh, and as I'm looking through this list of names, very creative names, I was struck by uh, one particular British show called Help, My House is Falling Down. How about that? And so I, I looked at some of the first episodes. In the first episode of this, this show, they rescue a house from brick-eating bees. I'm not making this up. I had no idea that bees could eat bricks, but evidently that's the case. Second episode of this show, they saved a house from sewage, sludge, and black mold. Next episode, it was this great big beautiful Victorian house and it was getting crushed by tree roots that were breaking up the foundation and the walls of the house. And then there was an episode after that where a house was sinking into the ground and I thought, I'm liking my house. <laughs> you know? So don't you feel better about your house when you watch those shows or feel better about the fact that you're renting and you don't own a house? <laughs> that headache. Uh, in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, he compares our lives to a house. He uses the metaphor of a house, and he contrasts two kinds of houses, two, two groups of people. And you know, the first group are those people who are building their house in obedience to God. They're living their lives, striving to obey God's word. And so they're building on a rock foundation, and when the storms of life hit, their house stands firm. Second group are those who neglect God's word or don't obey it. And so they're kind of throwing their house together in a haphazard way. They're building on sand. When the storms of life come, those houses crumble. So Jesus tells a story like this to you know, kind of ask a question. So which house are you? Which group are you in? And the truth of the matter is all of us, to some extent, are living in the second group. Okay, from day to day, we continually do things that are disobedient to God, and so we're contributing to this house built on sand. Does this mean our lives are destined to fall apart? Well, not necessarily. Not if we're willing to do regular house renovation. Not if we're willing to regularly, regularly examine our lives, looking for those things that need to be fixed, looking for behaviors and attitudes and priorities and values that need to be disposed of, and in turn replaced with behaviors and attitudes and priorities and values that are God-pleasing. Now, the Bible calls this regular self-examination, this house remodeling, repentance. Repentance. So, welcome to the second week of our four-part restoration series. We're calling it Repentance Out with the Old, or, or Restoration Out with the Old, In with the New. And we began this series last week Easter weekend, looking at the resurrection power that God gives to people who surrender their lives to Christ. It's God's power that allows us to make long-lasting positive changes in our lives. Today, we're going to take a look at repentance, engaging in regular self-examination so that we can detect what the changes are that need to take shape. So when we say out with the old, in with the new, what, what, what is the old that's got to go? What, what are the gnarly old behaviors and, and attitudes that need to be changed out? That's what repentance identifies and what it deals with. 
Now, I'm calling today's sermon Relentless Repentance because repentance is an activity that, that we got to practice continually, persistently, tenaciously. Repentance is not something you do, you do just once and then forget about it. You may have heard the story about the couple that was struggling in their marriage and the wife turned to the husband and she said, you, you never tell me you love me. And he looked at her and he said, never? He said, well, when we got married, did, did I say I love you? And she said, well, yeah. And he said, well, nothing's changed. <laughs> you know, some people look at repentance that way. They, well, they initially repented of their sins when they surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. You may have done that last weekend at our Easter service. You, know, you, you tell Jesus, I'm sorry for my wrongdoing, and you thank him for dying on the cross to pay the penalty for, for your sins, and you ask Jesus to forgive you and to give you a, first start, a fresh start. So repentance accomplished, right? You know, I, I'm sorry is pretty much a one-time declaration that doesn't need to be repeated, we think, and unless you do something really, really bad. Now, if you do something really, really bad, then you might want to tell Jesus I'm sorry another time. But on most days, we sort of assume that everything's cool between God and us. That, you know, we don't give a thought to repentance. Well, the Bible does teach that when we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, that his death on the cross pays our sins penalty, past, present, and future. However, even though sin's penalty has been paid, now listen, even though sin's penalty has been paid, our daily sins still mess up our lives and they mess up our fellowship with a holy God. And that's why relentless repentance is so necessary. So would you turn with me? Our scripture for today is in Psalm 19. Let's turn to Psalm 19, smack dab in the middle of your Bible. And there's an outline in your program I encourage you to follow along. We're going to look at a passage today that uh, I pray out loud almost every day. This has become a, a very helpful prayer uh, to me. We're, we're going to find it in today's text, Matthew, uh, Psalm 19. And so I'm going to teach you this prayer as well as four steps of repentance that it covers. Here's the first step. I call it study your blueprint, okay? Study your blueprint. And we're going to pick up Psalm 19 right in the middle of verse 9. So if you've got your Bible open, look at the middle of the verse where it says the decrees of the Lord. See that? The decrees of the Lord. Now, the psalmist is talking about God's word. He's talking about the Bible. In fact, he's been talking about the Bible for several verses leading up to verse 9. He's referred to the Bible as God's law, as God's statutes, as God's precepts, as God's commands. And now, now he talks about it as God's decrees. So, what does the psalmist have to say about God's decrees? Follow along as I read beginning in the middle of verse 9. He says, The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold and much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. And by them, by God's decrees, by his word, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Now we're going to stop right there, right in the middle of verse 12. Who can discern their own errors? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for your word. Who can discern his own errors? 
Okay, this is, this is the question we all wrestle with because the, the truth of the, the matter is we're not very good at seeing our own faults. We're, we're much better at spotting faults in other people's lives, right? And that's why the psalmist says, you know, who can detect their own sins? Now, he says this, he, he, he speaks of our cluelessness after having praised God for his word for several verses, as I already pointed out. So what's the connection between God's word and our cluelessness? The, the, the connection is it's God's word that reveals our cluelessness, the sins that we're skating over, okay, that we're not seeing. It's God's word that brings them to light in our lives. You know, God's word is like, and here's the metaphor I want to use, God's word is like an architect's blueprint. So, so back to that home remodeling motif that I began with today. Okay, if you're going to spot the things that are wrong in your house that need to be fixed, or if you want to uh, build a house the right way, you've got to have an architect's blueprint to work with. And that, that's how you, God's word is how we know the difference between good behaviors and bad behaviors, good attitudes and bad attitudes in our lives. I've got a good friend. In fact, he's my, my accountability partner. Uh, we have been meeting together for years. Uh, every other week, we do lunch together, and we share our lives, our struggles, uh, our failures, the areas in which we're experiencing temptation, and then when we've been really open with each other, we pray for each other. So um, this past week, I was sharing with my friend the sermon the outline for today, and said, you know, the, the very first point is how important it is that we have an architect's plan for our lives. And uh, my friend lit up because he happens to be an architect. And he said, yeah, in my early days, he said, one of the things that always surprised me was how little attention people paid to my drawings. <laughs> he said, in fact, I, I could still remember I, I did some, uh, some blueprints for a couple to build a house, and on the day of inspection, the, the lady calls me, and she says, something's wrong. We didn't pass inspection. And the insinuation was, you know, there's trouble with the blueprints. So my friend grabbed his set of drawings, and he hopped in his car, and he drove over, and he asked for the list of the, the things the inspector had pointed out that needed to be fixed, and he went through that list one at a time, and he pointed to the blueprint, and everything was covered on the blueprint. See, the problem was not the blueprint. The problem was nobody had been paying any attention to the blueprint. The psalmist says, who can discern their own errors? Psalm 19, verse 12, and the answer is, well, well nobody no, nobody's very good at seeing the flaws in their habits and character. And this, this is why we need daily exposure to God's word. It's our blueprint for living. You know, the, the Bible lays out the correct behaviors and attitudes for our lives. It exposes those that are, are defective. I mean, to change metaphors for just a moment here, in James chapter 1, in the New Testament, J James likens God's word not, not to an architect's blueprint, but to a mirror. So, now, now, you know, every time you look in the mirror, you make an adjustment, right? I mean, everybody who came to one of our public services today, you, you looked in a mirror. I don't think there was anyone who didn't look in a mirror. Just to make sure there was no breakfast cereal between your teeth or your, you know, your shirt was buttoned up the right way or there were, were no clumps in your mascara, right, ladies? I mean, if you, if you didn't look in the mirror... The rest of us know you didn't look in the mirror. We're just looking around. We could pick out who didn't look in the mirror today. Now, if you're watching online, maybe you didn't look in the mirror. You're still sitting with your Johnny pants on and whatever. Okay, but most of us look in a mirror on a regular basis so that we can make adjustments to our lives. 
Exactly. God's word is the mirror for our lives, for our behaviors, our words, our attitudes. This is why at Christ Community Church, we have designed a daily Bible reading schedule, and we encourage everybody, please pick up a, a copy of the schedule and follow it. You know, imbibe God's word on a daily basis. It's your blueprint. It's your mirror. And we, we, we've even put together a, uh, you know, a journal, a Bible-savvy journal. Hundreds of you are using this. Uh, every four months, we come out with a new journal, and so the new one's coming out. You know, for May here and the summer months, I encourage you to pick one up. Pick up a Bible-savvy journal if you're an adult. Pick up an epic journal for your kids and make sure you're exposing them to the Bible every day throughout the course of the summer. We're currently reading in the Old Testament book of Numbers and the New Testament book of Matthew. See, there's no way we can practice relentless repentance, no way we can renovate our house without studying the blueprint. Get it? Good. Number two. Step two in relentless repentance. Take your inventory. Take your inventory. Now, last week I told you that in preparation for this restoration series, I've been doing a lot of reading about addictions and how to counsel people who want to break bad patterns in their lives. And so there's been a, a little bit of reflecting on AA's 12-step program, recovery program. And if you're familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous, you know that originally these 12 steps were based on biblical principles. And so last week we talked about resurrection power, the power that God offers us to make positive changes in our lives, and we looked at the first three steps in AA's 12-step recovery program. All three of those first three steps point to our need for a higher power. Well, today as we talk about relentless repentance, I want to share a few more of AA's 12 steps with you. So here's the fourth step. We make a searching and fearless inventory of ourselves. We make a searching and fearless inventory of ourselves. Here's the fifth step. We admit to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrong. Wow, when, when AA refers to a searching and fearless inventory of ourselves so as to, to detect the exact nature of our wrongs, it's basically summing up the second point I'm making right now in the sermon. Take your inventory. Take your inventory. Now back to Psalm 19. We left off in the middle of verse 12. After the psalmist asked the question, so who can discern their own errors? He continues on in verse 12 in the first part of verse 13 saying, Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from, sin, from willful sins. Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. Now, there are two kinds of sins mentioned in these verses. So if you've got your own Bible, circle these. Hidden faults, willful sins. Hidden faults, willful sins. Now, it doesn't usually take a thoroughgoing, introspective, personal inventory to spot the willful sins in our lives, does it? I mean, when we willfully and deliberately and stubbornly do or say something bad, we, we, we typically recognize it right away. And, and hopefully that recognition should lead to repentance. It doesn't always because of our stubbornness. But, but it's not because we miss it. You know, the willful sins... We know about it. We, we know about it as we're doing it. So hopefully it should lead us to say, so God, I'm sorry for, I'm sorry for losing my temper with my kids. I mean, that was obvious. 
I'm sorry for cheating on the algebra test. I'm sorry for getting drunk at the party. I'm sorry for dissing my best friend behind her back. I'm sorry for spending all that money on myself. Willful sins. We know that we're doing the wrong as we're doing it, but we do it anyway. My guess is that every one of us, I mean, how many of you this last week, you did something, you said something, in the very act of doing it or saying it, you knew this is wrong, but you did it anyway. Okay, and if you don't have your hand up, you're just lying to the rest of us. Okay? Those are willful sins. You know about them. But what about the hidden faults? What, what about that first category of wrongdoing that the psalmist notes? Uh, hidden faults are not so obvious. You know, we're, we're not going to catch the hidden faults, friends, unless we're doing a regular, thorough inventory of our lives. In fact, we have a tendency to keep our hidden faults hidden. There are a variety of behaviors, I call them denial behaviors, that we use to keep our hidden faults faults hidden. Let me give you half a dozen of these. All right? You see if you don't do some of these. Flattering. I mean, we flatter ourselves, convincing ourselves that we're, we're pretty good, and because of this flatter, we, flattery, we fail to detect our hidden faults. There was a survey taken of high school students a few years ago. A million high school students were, were surveyed, and they were asked the question, how do you get along with other people? Every single high school student, over a million students, answered better than average. Now, now you can't have better than average, right? I mean, you've got to have some below average, some average, some... No, 100% of them were better than average. 25% of them said they're in the top 1% of people who get along well with other people. You know, we'd be thinking we're pretty good, which makes it difficult to detect when we're being pretty bad. Here's a second behavior that keeps hidden faults hidden, generalizing. I mean, how many times have you heard people say, you've said it yourself, hey, I'm not perfect. And, and we think that's a humble statement. That's not humble. You know, it's easy to say, I'm not perfect. Anybody can say that. Now, now try admitting specifically to the fact that, you know, I've been greedy or I've been cranky, or I've been self-centered, or dishonest, or abusive, or lazy. When was the last time you said something like that? Well, I've just been selfish. Wow. Comparing. That's another evasion. Another way to keep hidden faults hidden. No matter what we do wrong, we can always point to somebody who's done worse. Well, I know I drink too much, but I don't do drugs. I know I've been, you know, dabbling in porn, but you know, I'm not having an affair on my wife. I, I cheat on my expense account, kind of, you know, everybody does that, but I don't embezzle from the company. It's comparing. Fourth way we do this, minimizing. This is somewhat linked to comparing. We, we have a sense that we've done something wrong, but we just don't think it's a big deal because everybody's doing it, and we know there are much worse sins out there. So, you know, we're saying to ourselves, you know, all I've done is I've slept with my girlfriend. Like, big deal, right? You know, all, all I've done is dropped a few F-bombs, or all I've done is called in sick when I wasn't really sick. All, all I've done is skip church once in a while. Skipping church, big deal. Well, you know, it's one of the 
Ten Commandments, commandment number four being setting aside a day each week when you gather for worship. Evidently, it's a big deal to God, but we have a way of minimizing these things. Hey, that's all I've done. No big deal. Everybody does it. Here's, here's another way we dismiss our sins, blaming. You know, sometimes we blame our circumstances. Oh, I was tired. You know, or the traffic just kind of made me gnarly. Sometimes we blame people. We blame other people. Well, my friends kind of talked me into it. Or, you know, the competition, business-wise, they're all doing that. So, yeah, I got to do it to keep up with them. So we're casting the blame to somebody else. It's a behavior, by the way, that was practiced at the beginning of time. God puts Adam and Eve in the, the, the Garden of Eden, says don't eat from a particular tree and so Adam eats the fruit of that tree and God shows up and says what what's the deal Adam why did you disobey and remember Adam's response he says the woman you gave me she told me to eat this she handed it to me Adam gets credit for a double blame here he not only blames Eve for handing him the fruit it's God's fault for giving him Eve in the first place. By the way, that's a really good thing. If you could blame God in the process, that's great, you know, extra points. Let me me throw out one last one, attacking. You know, if you want to keep hidden faults hidden, what you do when somebody else brings them to your attention, you just turn it around and you say, you know, you got a lot of nerve pointing that out to me when you do such and such. So instead of listening to the message, you kill the messenger. These are some of the reasons that hidden faults stay hidden. But if we want to renovate our house, if we want to renovate our house, then we've got to make a daily habit of taking inventory, of asking ourselves the question, what's broken and needs to be fixed? What's broken and needs to be fixed in my life right now? You know, I, I would encourage you, I would encourage you to set aside a set time and place where you do this every day. Now, for many of us, that's going to be first thing in the morning. So if you've already made a a daily habit out of taking your Bible and sitting down at the breakfast table with your bowl of Cheerios or a cup of coffee in in a chair where you can read, before you open your Bible, try taking the personal inventory of the previous 24 hours and review conversations. Review activities from the previous day, review decisions you made, entertainment you engaged in, how you treated other people. You do a quick review and you repent of the things that need to be fixed. Now, maybe it's not first thing in the day for you. Maybe it's, uh, it's later on when you drive to school or to work and you got that car time. Maybe it's when you take your, your daily uh, walk around the block, you're walking your dog or you're on the treadmill or the elliptical machine at the health club and that's, a, that's an opportunity for you to do some personal inventory. And maybe it's at the end of the day when you kneel beside your bed before going to sleep and you say, okay, God, I'm going to do a quick review here. And by, by the way, you need to appeal to the Holy Spirit to help you do this. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God has come to live on the inside. He's now your resident counselor. He's your life coach. And so I begin my my daily repentance by asking the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit of God, please put your finger on anything in my life the previous day that that has been displeasing to you, that's grieved you. Yeah, grieved you. Because my sins make God sad. Ephesians 4 verse 30. 
says, I can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So I'm asking the Holy Spirit who has been hurt, saddened by my sin to help, help me see it as I take my inventory. Here's the third step in repentance. Examine your motivation. Now, when I talk about motivation here, I'm, I'm not talking about examining the motivation behind your sin. Why did I sin? I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But right now, I'm talking about examining the motivation behind your repentance. Why are you telling God right now, I'm sorry? And, and, and some of you are wondering, well, does it, does it really matter why I'm telling God I'm sorry? Isn't any kind of I'm sorry a step in the right direction? The answer is no. There's a right kind of I'm sorry and there's a wrong reason for being I'm sorry and the wrong reason won't won't produce genuine repentance. Let, let, Let me illustrate the difference between these two kinds of I'm sorry with a couple of figures uh, that, you know, were part of the story, last week's Holy Week story. You're familiar with these guys, Judas and Peter. Both of these guys sinned big, Right? I mean, Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, sold him out to his enemies. Peter, who thought himself to be Jesus' best bud, he denies even knowing Jesus three times. Both guys sinned. Both guys were sorry for their sin, if you know the story. Both were sorry, and on the surface, it might look like it was the same kind of sorry. See, remember Judas, he he gets sorry, and what does he do? He returns the 30 pieces of silver, and he says, I betrayed an innocent man. Peter, what does he do? His I'm sorry is accompanied by weeping, bawling. I can't believe I did this. So, same kind of I'm sorry. Now, Judas' sorry was a sort of self-incriminating remorse. You know, he had gotten stuck in a tragic situation that he had created and he couldn't live with himself. Judas' world revolved around Judas, so he went out and committed suicide. He hung himself. Peter, on the other hand, he was sorry that he'd let down his best friend and he wanted so badly to restore that broken relationship, which was eventually restored. Two completely different kinds of I'm sorry. Now, go go back to Psalm 19. We left off in the middle of verse 13. The psalmist has just asked God to forgive him for both his hidden faults and his willful sins. And now he adds, verse 13, middle of the verse, may they not rule over me, then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. So based on those lines I just read to you, what is the motivation behind the psalmist's repentance? He wants to break the pattern of sin in his life. He wants to break the pattern of sin. He says here, I I don't want sin to rule over me. I want to be totally blameless. I want to be innocent in my relationship with God. Now, is this the motivation behind the repentance of everybody who repents? Is this the reason we all say, I'm sorry, God, when we say, I'm sorry, God? Hardly. Hardly. There there, there are all sorts of wrong motivations for which we repent. Such as, sometimes we repent, sometimes we say, I'm sorry, strictly because we've been caught. Say, I'm sorry. Well, we wouldn't be saying I'm sorry if we hadn't been caught, but we've been caught, so we say, I'm sorry. 
You know, we, we, we sent out an unflattering e uh, email or text and, and we pushed send and then realized after we pushed send, we sent it to the wrong person. You ever do that? I'm sorry. Yeah, well, you're just sorry you're caught. So sometimes we're sorry because we're embarrassed by what we've done. It's come to light and we feel so foolish, so stupid. You know, we got tagged by a cop for driving over the speed limit and it happened like four blocks from home. So the neighbors drove by and waved. Yeah. Oh, golly. Sometimes it's because of painful repercussions. I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm sorry I lost $1,000 gambling. Well, yeah, you're, what you're sorry for is you lost the, the $1,000, not that you were gambling. You know, I'm sorry that I spent all that time video gaming when I should have been studying for the test and I flunked the test. Yeah, you're sorry for the F. Sometimes we say, I'm sorry, strictly to get forgiven, quick way to get forgiven so we can go back and continue to live the way we want to live. You know, I read an interview with actress Kira Knightley recently. She said, if only I wasn't an atheist, I could get away with anything. You just ask for forgiveness and then you'd be forgiven. Yeah, that's how some people, even Christ followers, that's how they view repentance. It's just cheap forgiveness. You say sorry to God and you're good to go. See, there are all sorts of wrong motivations for saying, I'm sorry, God. The right motivation, the right, listen, the right motivation is because we truly want to break the pattern of sin in our lives and live in a way that pleases God. You know, the Apostle Paul he called the wrong motivations for repentance. He called them worldly sorrow. And he called the right motivation godly sorrow. You know, he says this in 2 Corinthians in chapter 7. I want to read a couple of verses to you. He's writing a second letter to the Corinthians. In his first letter, he got on their face about some bad behavior. And then before he writes the second letter, he's kind of wondering how they received his rebuke. Now, now, he's fairly certain they're going to be sorry, but in the back of his mind, he's wondering, is it going to be a good sorry, like Peter, or is it going to be a bad sorry, like Judas? I mean, are they going to come around and say, hey, we want to fix those things you pointed out to us? Or is it going to be just a bad sorrow, just sulking? Well, it turns out they responded well, so look at how, how Paul writes to them. This is 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. He says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, my previous letter... I don't regret it. I, oh, I did regret it because I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. And yet now, now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. You follow what Paul's saying? I'm so glad you guys were sorry in the right way. That there was an appropriate motivation behind your I'm sorry. See, there's a good motivation and a bad motivation behind repentance. Here's the fourth step. You know, before, before we move on to the fourth step, I do want to cite AA again because there's a couple more steps. The sixth step in AA's recovery program is this, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And then here's the seventh step, we humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. See, that's rightly motivated, I'm sorry. We want God to bring about a change in our lives. Now, the fourth step, fix your heart. 
Fix your heart. One last look at Psalm 19. Look at verse 14. By the way, when I pray this prayer, I begin it uh, up at verse 12, but who can discern their own errors? And I pray it through verse 14. Verse 14 adds, "May, May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So the psalmist concludes this prayer of repentance by focusing on his mouth and on his heart. Now, let's start with with our mouths. You know, we often think of sin in terms of stuff we do, actions. So so as we're taking inventory, we're, we're reviewing things we've done as opposed to reviewing our words. And I want to tell you, a lot of our sin has to do with what comes out of our mouths. You know, sin can take the form of lies, gossip, arrogance, anger, profanity, slander, flattery, seduction, abuse, criticism, sarcasm. Everything I've just said is stuff that comes out of our mouths. There there are lots of ways to sin with our mouths. Something we need to keep in mind as we're taking inventory of our sins in order to repent. What's been coming out of our mouths? The prophet Isaiah was given a vision of the throne room of heaven. So he catches a glimpse of God Almighty. And what's his response? Have you ever read this passage, Isaiah chapter 6? He falls on his face before God. And he says, Isaiah 6 verse 5, Woe to me, because I'm a man of unclean lips And I live among a people of unclean lips, and yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. So the very first thing that strikes Isaiah when he sees God, when he comes into the presence of God Almighty, is the crud that's been coming out of his mouth. So when we come before God Almighty to take inventory of our lives, first thing we do, check what's been coming out of our mouths. And and as we're doing that, then we keep in mind something Jesus taught about our mouths. Jesus taught that our mouths speak about what's going on in our hearts. So a couple of passages in, in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 12, verse 34, Jesus says, The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Matthew 15, verse 18, But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. So when we're reviewing what's coming out of our mouths, we've got to take a look and say, And where did that originate? What was going on in my heart at the time? I've I've got a three and a half year old granddaughter who is very verbal. And uh, sometimes she says things that leave you wondering, what is going on in that pretty little head of hers? And so, you know, when she lives at a distance uh, like she does, uh, she's in England with her her family these days. Uh, I live on Instagram videos and and whatever. So I want to show you a clip from a, a recent video to see if you can help me figure out what is she talking about? All right, watch this. And I looked in the dive, there was one boy. And I looked in the swimming pool, and there was one girl. But they were both closing their eyes swimming, and I had no idea why this was recorded. So, and I went back and looked at the teacher. There's no way anyone could even text. And I looked at the bottle, wondering who drank all the water and all the smoothie. And I said, did a giant come? I don't know what, like, who drank this? Who ate this? 
It's just stream of consciousness stuff, right? <laughs> but it leaves me wondering, so what is going on in that little girl when these kinds of words spill out of her mouth? Now, I show you that in part because it's just the way grand Grandpa brags on his kids. But, but it, you know, this is a question that we should constantly be asking ourselves as we evaluate the words that, comes out of our, that come out of our mouths. What's going on in my heart? Okay, so where did that little bit of profanity come from? I mean, I dropped something, and the first words out of my mouth were swear, cuss words. What's going on? Okay, where did that little bit of bragging? I'm in this conversation, and I'm dropping hints about how good I am. You know, where's that coming from? Where, where did that flirtatious remark I said to that guy, where did that come from? What's going on in my heart right now? You know, one of the books that I read in preparation for this series is called The, the Power of Brokenness. And the author confesses to a problem that he had for years with, with lying. And lying is something that needed to be broken in his life. But listen to this. He said, I would lie about everything, important or not. I mean, the lies were always aimed at preserving an image. I wanted to be interesting and popular. I never wanted to be caught doing anything that could be construed as wrong. If I was late for an appointment because I overslept, there had to have been a car accident or a power failure or a major problem with my alarm clock. <laughs> I lied about my past. I lied about my preferences. I even lied about my boring trips to the grocery store. Interesting. The, the lies that came out of this guy's mouth were an indication that something was wrong with his heart. So friends, as we practice daily relentless Repentance, we've got to constantly look behind our words, behind our actions, and ask ourselves the question, so what's going on in my heart? And then we can ask God to cleanse, to fix, to fix our hearts. You know, when I say in this last point, fix your heart, I'm not suggesting that you can fix your heart or I can fix my heart. Only God can. What I'm saying is you've got to come to God and say, please, let's take care of this. Now, here's a verse I want to leave with you as we draw things to a close today. You hear this verse frequently around Christ Community Church. It's a verse you need to memorize, recite on a regular basis. In fact, it's a good verse to recite when you've done the repentance thing. When you've taken the inventory and you've repented to God, conclude with 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Friends, this forgiveness is predicated on the fact that Christ paid the penalty for those sins. God offers forgiveness as a gift to those who ask for it, to those who surrender to Jesus. If you've never surrendered to Jesus, do it. If you have surrendered to Jesus, then after confessing your sins on a daily basis, thank God that Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe, we sing. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. 